Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. Inconceivable! My name is is Josh (laughs) Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and word on the street has it that I'm in the running to be the next Dread Pirate Roberts. Inconceivable. (laughs) As you wish. All right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> quoting <laughs> what are we quoting i'm sure people like this is like one of the most quoted movies that there is we are talking about the films of 1987 in this season and we are here at jason's pick and what did you pick jason i picked the princess bride it's a lovely tale set within a tale in some ways josh um but uh just a really fun movie. I was thinking like, you know, you're having a bad day or you're sitting on the couch and it's raining. This is one of those movies you can just watch and it'll up your spirits. If you're homesick and not going to school and your grandpa's coming over, watch yeah. the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe you just have a nice bowl of soup with you. Mm, soup. Eat yes. some soup. Yes, indeed. Uh, yes. And of course, this movie is directed by our favorite director i guess or our certainly most covered director he's the now official the director of, the... of awesome movie year. he Gosh. is yes he's pulled ahead yes. of the pack now it's rob reiner this is our fourth episode about a rob reiner film and for a while he was tied i believe with peter jackson and martin scorsese who we Bums. covered three times <laughs> but he's pulled ahead now we're here i feel like one of the things is that Not only did he have, as we've talked about, I think, in other episodes about his films, this like run of hugely successful, acclaimed films in the 80s um, and early 90s, I guess. I'd say the 95 American president. Yeah. But also, those movies are very different, a lot of them. And so I think that's what comes up is that we have all these different categories and Rob Reiner has sort of taken on all these different genres and types of films that they end up popping up in all our different categories. Yeah. I put down his filmography from 84 through 95 as a director, which is, and we've talked about some of this before. This is Spinal Tap. Then the sure thing, which is a, the sure thing's a lesser one, right? It's not a sure thing. No, it's not. But then you got stand by me, princess bride, Harry met Sally, uh, misery and a few good men all in a row. What a, what a, like what a streak. And then, North, but then he came back with American President. So I was surprised, like that after American President, that he, you know, he hit a few lulls, but that he didn't hit a, a few more home runs because I don't consider the bucket list a home run, Josh. Right. That was a financially successful movie, and I think the last financially successful movie that he made. But I haven't seen it, and it does not seem like something that I want to see. I, I don't. I I've seen it. I didn't really like it, but I don't think you could do better really than that stand by me through a few good men run that's a crazy run right there right exactly and that's what i'm saying is that's a run of commercially critically successful films that are also there's horror there's courtroom drama there's comedy fantasy there's rom-com i mean he's really covered a huge spectrum yeah. of genres there. and, a, and a, you know a kids a kids movie kind of uh, an 80s kids movie i guess you would call stand by me right it is so yeah. We are here talking about a movie that is also kind of, I don't know if this movie is for kids or it's at least appropriate for kids, right? I mean, I think you watch this with your daughter, right, Jason? Yeah, it's family friendly. We've watched it twice together now, so that's exciting. Yeah. 
And I think this is a movie that that people grow up on. People from our generation, especially, remember having watched it as kids, and that's why they have all this nostalgia for it. Interestingly, it wasn't a massive hit when it first came out. It did okay. It grossed $30.9 million at the box office on its $16 million budget. So that's not hugely successful, but it's another one of these that I think on home video, as we've talked about a lot, especially I think something where families might rent it or kids might rent it for parties or whatever. And the kind of thing that younger kids might see and then watch over and over again because they're able to get it on VHS. And that's where it really built this huge following. I think that cable, I mean, it's, it's a four quadrant movie, right? You can watch it, you know, alone or with any version of a family member that you have, Josh, whatever version of a family member that might be. <laughs> so many different versions of family <laughs> but, members uh, available. Well, I told my dad we were watching it and he was like, oh, that's one of my favorite movies. And the point is, I think it spans generations like Rob Reiner himself. It does. It does. And it was acclaimed and popular among the people who saw it when it came out. Awards wise, it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Song for the song Storybook Love by Willie DeVille that plays under the credits, which I thought was not that great a song. But You're not, um, you're not a big Mink DeVille fan from back I guess then? not. I had not heard of him or that band. but um, uh, Underground yeah. garage stuff, Josh. But uh, but Mark Knopfler did the music. You, you got to like Mark Knopfler, right? I do like Mark Knopfler, and his score is very good. That was nominated for a Grammy. And the movie did win at a couple of big genre awards, the Hugo Awards. It won for Best Dramatic Presentation, and it won the Saturn Award for Best Fantasy Film. So I think, especially within sort of genre fans, it was pretty popular at the time. Right. And then it just kind of uh, coalesced into this. It's a super mainstream movie, right? So you're, you're almost surprised that it didn't, that it took that time to find that audience. But, you know, I guess we could have done this as a cult classic. Yeah. I mean, I think I was a little surprised to see that it hadn't been a bigger hit because I feel like we do at this point think of this as one of the big mainstream movies of the year, along with stuff that we've talked about already, like Three Men and a Baby and Adventures in Babysitting. And it's a similar, like you said, four quadrant family kind of thing, but maybe it wasn't quite as big right away. And now it's bigger than both of those. It is. It is. So, but again, Popular with the people who saw it, it got an A-plus cinema score from the audience polling service, so the people who did go out and see it opening weekend really liked it. Critics also liked it. It got two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert, and in his review, Roger Ebert said, The moment the princess is taken away by agents of the evil Prince Humperdinck, The Princess Bride reveals itself as a sly parody of sword and sorcery movies a film that somehow manages to exist on two levels at once. While younger viewers will sit spellbound at the thrilling events on the screen, adults, I think, will be laughing a lot. In its own peculiar way, The Princess Bride resembles This Is Spinal Tap, an earlier film by the same director, Rob Reiner. Both films are funny not only because they contain comedy, but because Reiner does justice to the underlying form of his story. It is filled with good-hearted fun, with performances by actors who seem to be smacking their lips, and by a certain true innocence that survives all of Reiner's satire. Yeah, I mean, first of all, he he cast the 
the living daylights out of this thing, right? <laughs> like these are all like kind of iconic performances at this point in time. And like, you know, even someone like Carrie Ulwes. Elwes? Carrie. I thought it was Elwes. Yeah. Carrie. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, he's he he works constantly, but this is his his moneymaker right here because you know, he wrote the book about it. He's always leaning into it i think all these guys are leaning into hey we get recognized and people quote this to us all the time and isn't that great and even this could be you know these guys could go on the comic-con circuits and all that stuff and uh learn how to pronounce carrie's last name right you know there's a lot of things that could happen because this movie's so successful Josh. yeah i mean that definitely is his signature role um you know Apologies to Dr. Lawrence Gordon in the Saw movies, yeah. but, um, which for some of those Comic-Con people probably is his signature role. But overall, I think it is. You're right. It is this. And yeah, it's it's so well cast. Him, Robin Wright, who plays Princess Buttercup. This was an early role for her. And even the small comedic parts. Obviously, Rob Reiner, who had his own history as an actor, knows how to work well with actors. So I think that is a huge part of why this movie is successful. And it seems like everyone involved is, they're enthused about it. Not only now, you know, decades later when they have talk about it, but it seems like they're really having a good time making this movie. But I agree. It does. I think they've all said what a blast they had making it. And um, what you were quoting there about working on two levels, that that's, you know, it's a William Goldman script based on his novel. And I do think it works just as like a super fun story, but there's so much cleverness to it. That uh, whether you're watching it like for the first time as a kid, or if you watched it a few times and you know you catch all the little jokes, it's there's a lot going on. But I think the jokes are I don't want to say broad enough, but like kind of uh, on the level enough that like kids catch them too. Right. Yeah, and I think that's one thing too here that is important that Ebert's pointing out that it's sort of a parody, but it's not like condescending. It's not trying to say like, oh, fairy tales are dumb or all these ideas are dumb. I mean, it's about true love and it's kind of presenting that in a comedic manner, but it's it's also being straightforward about, yeah, true love is great and these people are in love and you're going to care about it. I think. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a comedic homage, if you will, to this yes. type of film. Yes. So Janet Maslin in the New York Times had a similar perspective. She said, it's hard to imagine that anyone besides Rob Reiner whose other films, even the mercilessly funny This Is Spinal Tap, have displayed such a fundamental niceness, could have handled The Princess Bride so comfortably. This material might easily have lent itself to broad parody or become too cute for its own good. But Mr. Reiner presents it as a bedtime story, pure and simple. The film's style is gentle, even fragile, with none of the bold flourishes that might be expected, but with none of the silliness either. Its look is modest. Even the high-flying adventure scenes have a mild quality. But The Princess Bride has a unifying conviction. Mr. Reiner seems to understand exactly what Mr. Goldman loves about stories of this kind, and he conveys it with clarity and affection. So Goldman had this set up in the 70s, and you know it was one of those studios changed ownerships, and uh, there were a few different times it almost got made. Um, as we said, it's based on his novel, The Princess Bride, S. Morgenstern's classic tale of true love and high adventure, the good parts version. But yeah, I think this was one of those things that worked out the way it was supposed to work out. Rob Reiner was the right director and this was the right time for it. Right, right. And I don't think any of us have read the novel that this is based on. I haven't. No. Dave doesn't no. read. 
yeah, I didn't read it either. Yeah. So. Um, I did read a little bit about it. And I guess it's it's also kind of meta, but it doesn't feature the framing device that the movie does of the grandfather reading the book to the sick kid. It's Goldman himself kind of commenting on the book as if he has abridged a real existing book that he read when he was a kid, which of course is fictional. Um, so it's got that meta level that they they shift here. I mean, you know, if you wanted to recreate that it would be as if like maybe the filmmaker was commenting on how they're adapting it to a film or something and that's not the uh, like adaptation or something right so, something like that but um it's interesting you bring that up so uh, i had read that you know he asked his daughters like what his next book should be about and one said a princess and one said a bride so that's how he got the title and everything nice but that's interesting that that wasn't the framing device because it works so well in this film right it does and i think that that's part of what makes it into this sort of gentle family friendly story that if it had been more of like Rob Reiner himself or, or like an adaptation, like a character who represents the writer or the filmmaker kind of snarking on how silly some of these fairy tale ideas are, it would have lost the sense that we're talking about that it works as a fairy tale in a straightforward way as well. Yeah, Reiner, you know, he's definitely got a sweetness, a sentimentality to him, especially his comedies. So I think all that kind of stuff where, you know, Fred Savage is telling Peter Falk, the, the grandson of the grandfather, like, no, skip the kissing parts and this and that. And he eventually gets more and more into it. Has its own nice little arc there that's also very uh, sweet as a, as a Reinerism would be, Josh. Yes. Why not? A rhinoceros? Mm, I don't think that's the word for it. All right. So Michael Wilmington in the Los Angeles Times had read the book, and he actually compares it here, not always favorably to the book. He said, heroic fantasies we often feel should be lighter than air, hot as dragon fire, fast as a sword in sunlight. And that's mostly what we get from the delightful The Princess Bride, along with some bracing humor and foolery. The original 1973 novel pastiche by scenarist William Goldman had more pessimism. It suggests that our illusion-blasting world can't support such perfect romantic fantasy. But director Rob Reiner's movie has become a purer piece of escapism, a gently sophisticated, tongue-in-cheek barrage of wry swordplay and blithe sorcery, with the painful edges buried deeper down. In The Princess Bride, everything is gloriously magnified and satirically undercut, daring do tempered with wisecracks. Can I start referring to myself as a scenarist? I, that is a correct term for yourself as a screenwriter. I feel like it's mostly seen in like variety reviews where they use a lot of those those jargon industry terms. But I guess the LA Times used it too. I've never done it, and you know, after I, I should have, you know, I won another screenwriting award summer, and I should have just been like, I am a scenarist. Award-winning scenarist, Jason yeah, Harris. There it is. Right. Oh, yeah. That's going to be on my business card. And that will be the reason why I get no business. <laughs> well, you're no uh, William Goldman, I guess. Who is? Top five of all time, maybe, right? Okay, sure. Two, two Oscars? Come on, Josh. Yeah, he's a legend, certainly. What'd you but... do? Did you write Butch and Sundance? Did you write All the President's Men? Of course not, Josh. No, I sure didn't. I'm no scenarist. <laughs> but and his his Oscars were for adapted and original, so he's a scenarist in 
both areas. He is indeed, and a novelist. And it makes me kind of curious about the book because I wonder if it has that more cynical tone and and how that would play because this movie is, as you said, so sweet. But um, who would I be to doubt William Bolton? Uh, also, it would be difficult reading the book because these are such iconic performances, right? Like you can't help but to picture all of these as the characters. Right. The time. I would imagine that's the case. So given all we've said about how this is such a nostalgic thing, Jason, did you watch this movie as a kid? I've never seen it, including to this point in the recording. (laughs) Yeah, I think we all watched it as kids. I couldn't tell you when that was. It was just like one of those, yeah, that's a great movie. And then, you know, when um, Scarlett was born and like as she started to enjoy movies and, oh, like I can watch stuff with her that's not Frozen or, you know, Encanto, I guess, is a more recent example, which is fine. Those are fine. but You don't want to watch them a thousand times, right? So you start to dig back and you're like, oh. I think we could watch this one. And she really liked it both times. Yeah, that's good. I, I agree with you. Like, I have the same experience in that. I know I saw it as a kid, but I couldn't pinpoint exactly when. And I probably saw it. Either I saw the movie multiple times or I saw parts of it multiple times because it was on cable and stuff like that. And it's the kind of fun, easy watch that you could put on for a few minutes and kind of, oh, yeah, I remember this part. This was fun. And then also dip back out of it. I feel like I never loved it so much that I have this strong nostalgic attachment to it that some people I think of our generation have. But it was, I always had fond memories of it and coming back to it this time, it was a nice watch. I don't think I loved it, but I had a pleasant time with it, which is, I think, what you want, I guess. Yeah, I think that's totally cool. I just remember, you know, without knowing, I feel like I didn't really know anything. I had seen the movie, but the only thing I really remembered before all the rewatches was... uh, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You know, you killed my father, prepare to die. And Mandy Patinkin is very charismatic in that role. And a good Spanish accent, I think. (laughs) He is very charismatic. And I mean, I think that line, one of the things about this movie is that because it's so quotable, you get these quotes that are constantly rehashed in different contexts or, you know, in more recent years, they become internet memes or whatever. And they do lose a bit of their impact when you've heard them so many times elsewhere, I think. Uh, that's very, it's uh, my writing partner, also a scenerist, Josh. Mm. He, um, the other day. co-scenerist, if you will. <laughs> co-scenerist. Mm. We're, uh, we're really pushing the boundaries of scenerism here, Josh. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the other day, he was texting me about something. I guess I, you know, uh, told him, oh, no, I think it's this. And I was right. He goes, oh, he sent me the, you know, the Miracle Max. Oh, look who knows so much meme. And I was like, you didn't even know we were covering that. right it's everywhere it's everywhere so uh dave did you watch this as a kid too i i also liked it as a kid and i never loved it i it was just like one of those fun movies from our childhoods and i hadn't seen it since then um it was fun to rewatch, and i still like it right yeah i think that was kind of my feeling about it it's i have positive but not really strong feelings about this film yeah so um Jason, uh, anything you want to say uh, additionally about the background of this film? Andre the Giant's a legend, bro. He is, and I'm sure we'll talk about him more when we come back and get into more of our general thoughts on The Princess Bride. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we are talking about Jason's pick, which is The Princess Bride. 
And uh, Jason, do you want to say more about why you picked this one? I came down to this and Raising Arizona. That's my two. And um, there was no way I was going to let the Coen brothers out rank Rob Reiner on Awesome Movie Year. Uh, I think I did. I mean, those are both, those are both obviously, uh, you know, great comedy movies of 87. I think I did it because I just felt like this one would resonate maybe a little more with the audience. Not to say we might not do uh, Raising Arizona at some point, but I just don't know how you could get through 87 without talking about The Princess Bride, Josh. It is a major yeah. one. And as we were saying earlier, it's, it's something that has grown in reputation that wasn't as big a hit then, but feels like a defining movie of that year when we look back at it now. And we've actually, I think, only done one other Coen Brothers movie. So it would, it would take a lot for them to pull ahead of Rob Reiner at this point. I mean, Raising Arizona is great. And like I said, totally hoping that I think we might cover it anyway. But Princess Bride is, like we said, like pretty much every character is now set in stone as that character because they all just did, a, you know, such a good job. And as you were saying, it really felt like everyone was on board to just have the most fun and make this just a wonderful time. And I think Rob Reiner, you know, kind of showcased that side of himself that maybe between this and Stand By Me, uh, North was a miss. But I feel like we could have seen more from him in this kind of field. In the sort of like fable, nostalgia, coming of age. Yeah, I think feel. so. Yeah. Family friendly fair. It's yeah. a little more, uh, like I said, four quadranty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have a favorite character? I, I think it's uh, Vicini, you know, the yeah. uh, Wallace Shawn character who just, you know, owns every scene he's in, especially his explanation when uh, our uh, friend of Dread Pirate, Rob Wesley, is going gonna, is gonna to poison him. And he's, he speaks all, you know, he goes through the reasoning on why it wouldn't be this cup or why it would be, you know, his cup. And of course, he just starts drinking and then dies in the middle of his rant, uh, which is maybe my favorite scene in there. I think. Mandy Patinkin is extremely charismatic and uh, Robin Wright, we know, went on to uh, bigger and more critically acclaimed things, but she looks like a princess here, right? So I don't know. I like the scenery. Obviously, it's England and Ireland, and I just think they did a really good job of bringing a fairy tale to life. Yeah, I, I think so, too. And I also really like that Bazzini scene. And I think what's so funny, too, is that he goes through that ridiculously long explanation and you know he's going to be poisoned and die because that's how a fairy tale works and Wesley is the hero and he's going to get the, the princess and all that. And you're just kind of waiting for it to happen. But it's very funny to watch him go through that. And what I love too is that then he, of course, drinks the poison and he dies and we know that that's going to happen. But I think then you think that Wesley is going to explain how he outsmarted Vicini. And of course, he didn't at all. His explanation is that actually he just poisoned both glasses, but he has an immunity to the poison that he built up. And I, I feel like that's another sort of subversion of the joke on top of the joke, which I really like in that scene. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that is a way to outsmart him by knowing that you're immune to it. But True, uh, I, I, I also, one other thing I liked is, you know, when we get into the special effects, the practical effects here, it's so much fun and in, a, in that like 80s style way, we talked about Peter Jackson a few times in that regard. But I really like how, you know, kind of monster shoppy, muppety, you know, the rodents look, the rodents of unusual size. You know, I, I, I like a lot of that stuff. It's just fun. Yeah, it is fun. I mean, it definitely has that. Obviously, that's what you were going to have in 1987 anyway. But still, I mean, I think it has that charm. 
that we associate with those kind of practical effects. I do want to say about related to Robin Wright and Princess Buttercup, I think this is one thing where if they made this movie now, she'd be maybe a more of a proactive character. And, and she should be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so. I agree. I mean, there's definitely that one scene, I think, re- related to the rodents, where they're in the fire swamp, this dangerous area that they have to traverse, and they've they've gone past the fire, and they encounter the rodents of unusual size, and the rodent is attacking Wesley, and she just kind of stands there. And you're waiting for her to like hit the rodent or something. I agree with right, that. Right, so. right. Not that she has to be uh, an expert sword fighter or something, but she could at least smack it with a branch or something like that. Yeah, so uh, Uma Thurman, Meg Ryan, Sean Young, Susie Amos, Courtney Cox, Alexandra Paul, and Whoopi Goldberg were the other people in contention. I mean, obviously, Meg Ryan and Uma Thurman around this time. Uh, similar types, I'd say, to Robin as well. Yeah, they they seem like they would have fit well. Whoopi Goldberg would have been a, an interesting choice. I, I, that's a yeah, that's the name that jumps out. But I also think if you have Whoopi Goldberg, you're going to get that more proactive character either way, right? Right, and I feel like also you might have ended up with a character who's a little too snarky. You know, much like Billy Crystal comes in here as Miracle Max and improvises his own dialogue and kind of adds his own personality there. I feel like Whoopi Goldberg is someone who would do that same thing, and it would really change what kind of character that is. Yeah. Uh, Reiner s- said uh, that he couldn't be on set when uh, Billy Crystal was improvising because his stomach hurt. He got so <laughs> nauseous from laughing so much. Um, <laughs> and I got this quote from Jane Jenkins, the casting director. Uh, they were at uh, Goldman's house, and uh, the doorbell rang. Rob went to the door, and literally as he opened the door, Robin Wright was standing there in this little white summer dress with her long blonde hair, and she had a halo from the sun. She was backlit by God. And Bill Goldman looked across the room at her, and he said, well, that's what I wrote. It was the most perfect thing. Yeah, I mean, she does have that kind of beatific look about her. And as you said, we know Robin Wright has range as an actor and has done grittier, more serious things, but I feel like she has that almost pure innocence that you want from that character, that they're going for from that character. Again, I, I was a little frustrated at times, like, come on, do something, Buttercup. But um, I mean, she, she pushes a guy down a hill. She does push a guy down a hill. She <laughs> and pushes, she threatens to kill herself. Yes, that's true. She is. She could have been even more passive. So she's got that going for her, I guess. But I, I didn't. It didn't bother me per se, but it was something that I that I kind of noticed. I think that's totally fair. It's a fair criticism, and it it would be uh, better with a more active uh, female uh, protagonist in there. Aside from that, I really think the structure holds up well. Where our man in black has to fight these uh, three goons, and then uh, besides killing the Sini, he is able to get both Inigo and Fezzik on his side for the second half of the movie. I think that well yeah i mean this is a very well-paced movie and even the framing device which is something that i feel like in other movies you might think oh this is unnecessary or this is going to slow us down but i think it's perfect there's just enough of that exchange between fred savage and peter falk that you can be immersed in the fairy tale when that's happening and you're not bothered when they come back in and when they do you're kind of oh right these guys it's fun to be reminded that they're telling the story and it's funny and it's it's structured really well that way. Yeah, well, we know Peter Falk is a legend, but Fred Savage, because he's a kid when he did so many of these movies, I don't know if he gets enough credit for what a good actor he was as a kid. Yeah, he's a good kid actor. I mean, this isn't a part that has as much to it as like 
the Wonder Years or something. The Wizard. But, <laughs> the Wizard. Yeah. I'm glad that we uh, have mentioned the Wizard. But uh, yeah, I mean, he is a, he is a good actor, and he has you know you know the kid has a little arc too where he's annoyed at the grandpa wanting to read him this book, and then of course he gets really into it, and by the end he's excited to read the book again, and of course associated with that he is excited about seeing his grandfather again, which at first at the beginning of the movie he's annoyed when the mom tells him the grandpa's coming over. Yeah, well, that's silly. You should always be excited to see your grandpa if he cares and is a good man like Peter Falk was in this one, Josh. He was he was quite a good man, yes. So, Josh, uh, for Fezzik, because they thought Andre the Giant had a match, a wrestling match in Tokyo that was going to pay him $5 million. It's good for you, Andre. One yeah. match, $5 million. Uh, Schwarzenegger was on the list, but he was already such a big star that like they thought it would take away. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, after his earlier turn in Airplane. airplane. Yeah, Airplane. Yeah. Classic nice, yeah. Lou Ferrigno, that one kind of makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, and Carol Struckian, who played uh, Lurch in the um, Adams Family movies. And then Liam Neeson and, uh, had auditioned for it. I don't think Liam Neeson would. I, I mean, obviously, Liam Neeson is great, but that would have been a very different kind of character, much like Whoopi Goldberg playing Buttercup. Yeah. Fezzik could say, I have a very specific set of skills. He does have a very specific set of skills. <laughs> he does. <laughs> Smashing. And then, you know, Danny DeVito, of course, for Vecini, which makes sense with the Reiner connection. But Wallace Shawn just really owns that part, huh? He really does. And Wallace Shawn is great at, I think one of the reviews that I read complained that I'm not sure what other movies around this time he would have done this in, but complained that Wallace Shawn had kind of too many times played the ironic tough guy where, you know, you look at Wallace Shawn and he's this little short nebbishy looking guy, but he's playing somebody who's like a, a criminal or a ruffian or whatever. And the contrast had gotten old, but I'm not sure what else he'd done that in at the time. My dinner with Andre. <laughs> yeah. So. My dinner with Andre the giant. Maybe. He could have done it. He could have done it. It's funny that you mentioned that. Cause I, have you ever seen my breakfast with Blassie, the Andy yeah. Kaufman send up of my dinner with Andre, where he just goes to breakfast with, professional wrestling manager and legend classy freddie plassey it's it's quite fun i had not seen or heard of that even nor have i seen my dinner with andre but i i would like to yeah i want to see that one but i haven't seen i've seen the blassy one uh josh what do you think of this in the the in the 70s when they were first trying to get this up and running richard lester francois Truffaut, robert redford who probably would have also played uh, the lead, Norman Jewison were the uh, directors. I don't know if any of those would have really worked. I mean, Richard Lester is known for this kind of madcap, self-referential comedy stuff, so he might have been able to pull it off with a similar tone. Didn't he made a Three Musketeers movie that I think has some of those qualities to it? I think the pacing might have been a little too fast that way. What do you think? Yeah, maybe so. I mean, I haven't seen that Three Musketeers movie and I feel like some Lester movies that I've seen, maybe I, I wasn't really crazy about, but it, it does feel like he has the style to capture the tone, maybe, that they were going for, at least more so than those other filmmakers that you mentioned. Yeah, it's interesting because on your pick, when we talked about Moonlighting, uh, Moonlighting uh, Moonstruck, not Moonlighting, the TV show with uh, Bruce Willis and Simul Shepard. But I love the pacing of that. So I wonder if Jewison could have pulled off a, a you know, as excellent pacing as Reiner did here. Yeah, maybe. And and like Rob Reiner, Jewison, as we talked about in that Moonstruck episode, is someone who directed movies of a wide variety of genres and, you know, was just this 
competent professional, more that, more than that, but you know, was able to come in and take on whatever material he was given and deliver it in a in an entertaining way. So maybe he could have done it with this too. Uh, Carl Reiner gave the book to Rob Reiner in the seventies, thinking it would be right for him, which I think is cool. The one other one thing I wanted to mention that we didn't talk about is I think he did a good job of utilizing those British comedic actors too, Peter Cook and Mel Smith as uh, you know the clergyman with the uh, speech affectation, and then the um, uh, the albino uh, who was a torturer. Right. And I think that that the clergyman especially is one of those characters where people quote all the time. I feel like it's one of those things, you know, you go to a wedding or something and someone is going to say marriage or two of and, um, you know, quotes like that. I feel like that. Thank you. That was an excellent impression. You nailed it. Um, <laughs> I feel like quotes like that. And especially, I don't know, maybe just being a, a writer or whatever, seeing the uh, Inigo Montoya line when Bazzini keeps saying that things are inconceivable and Inigo Montoya says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. That's so overused that I feel like people will say that and not even know where it's from. I think you're right, you know, but you could say that with a lot of these things, right? Right, Um, yeah, that's how pervasive it's become. Yeah, I think you're right. A lot of, it's a very quotable film, so I'll explain and I'll use small words as you wish, you know, there's plenty of that stuff. Yes, yes. But I mean, they all work, of course, in context, and they're still amusing to hear. But I do think there's an aspect of like, oh, I've heard that a million times before. And, you know, we've talked about that, I think, with other classic movies, like with Jaws, for example, with so many of the quotes from Jaws. Yeah. Yeah. Or even with the Stepford Wives, like the entire concept of Stepford Wives, which is another thing I think people talk about without knowing where it came from. And so maybe lessens impact of certain things, but not the movie's fault. I did like talking about Andre the Giant. He talked about what a good experience this was for him because he just felt like another actor, another cast member, and he wouldn't have people looking at him like, you know, as an attraction, just as another guy in it. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, and and he is, of course, uh, one of the most famous wrestlers of all time, right? I think so. Probably the most famous. I mean, everybody knows who Andre the Giant is, right? Right. Is he more famous than Hulk Hogan? I feel like he is just because I think he was such an attraction. I mean, Hulk Hogan, I guess the TV era was a bigger thing, but like Andre was such an attraction just going anywhere, you know, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I mean, you are the wrestling expert. Clearly not. (laughs) Can't answer this question. But I do like that, that, I mean, of course he's playing a character who is notably giant like he actually is but they definitely don't just kind of point out or or do this kind of wink nudge thing of like oh it's a pro wrestler guy or whatever he plays Fezzik and he's in that role he's playing a character and he does a good job with it there's a lot of fun behind the scenes stories of like it was cold on set so Andre the Giant put his hand over Robin Wright's head and it like fit over her entire head and warmed her up so yeah, there is, I think, one shot of his hand holding someone else's hand or like uh, on top of someone's hand or something like that. And you realize just just how giant he really is. Yes, he was. A, he was a big fella. He was. So, indeed. Did you have any other uh, misgivings about this one, Josh? No, I don't think so. Um, and like I said, my misgivings about Buttercup are less even about them not working within the context of this movie and just the idea of how you might tell this story if you were to do it now. Um, 
I think I just, this is the kind of movie that people have such strong emotional attachments to because of their childhood experiences. And even though I had a childhood experience with it, it wasn't one of those movies that I sort of like bonded with or whatever when I was a kid. So watching it this time, it was like, oh, this is fun. This is nice. But it didn't have that that kind of rush of feeling that some people might have. I mean, that was the experience we had this season with Adventures in Babysitting, which we were just like eh, on. I mean, it seems like we're both more positive on this, but uh, oh, all yeah. the feedback was definitely like how great the movie was and how you especially are an idiot. Yes, I am especially an idiot. But no, I mean, I think this is a better movie than Adventures in Babysitting. I mean, watching Adventures in Babysitting this time, which was one that I had more of a bond with when I was a kid. I was like, oh, this really is not very good. And Princess Bride is a very well-made film. It didn't like move me as much as it might have, or maybe it does for other people. But I think this is an excellent film. And it goes right along with that run, as we we're talking about with Rob Reiner, of of high quality films that I'll, all of which I think are very good, um, you know, North aside. I just wonder, like, man, he's got to have one more in him, but I don't know if we're ever going to get it. Yeah, I don't know at this point if that's the case. So, uh, Dave, do you have any thoughts? What did you like most about this film? I mean, I, I don't think it could be overstated how great Mandy Patinkin is. You know, he's just he's so lovable in this role. And uh, I, that, that would be the biggest thing. You know, there, there's a lot to like about the movie, though. Yeah, I feel like Mandy Patinkin's general like pop culture persona has become sort of lovable, lovable grandpa at this point yeah, in his career. Yeah. And uh, you can look back and, and see that here. He's got a good quote because, you know, people always come up to him on the street and, you know, hello, my name is uh, whatever you quote is, Josh, right? You know, uh-huh. <laughs> and you go, my father prepared to die. Uh, he said uh, about that, he said, I'm frankly thrilled about it. I can't believe that I got to be in the Wizard of Oz. You know what I mean? Just pretty cool. Right. I mean, and it's nice that people feel that way, that it seems like all of these people are excited to have been in this movie and they like that people love it so much. And they're not like Harrison Ford with Star Wars, like, oh, shut up about that <laughs> or whatever. They're all really happy about it. I think so. So uh, should we rate this out of uh, five rodents of unusual size? Sure. That sounds good to me. On Letterboxd, I have it at four. Uh, that's at go for Jason. Uh, I, I think on this watch, it was three and a half. So take as you wish, Josh, take whichever one. All right. I'm going to give it three and a half as well. I do think it's really good, even though I'm not over the moon over it. But it is it is an excellent film. If for some reason people haven't watched it or if you haven't watched it since you were a kid, it's worth revisiting. It'll hold up. So, Dave, how would you rate this? Yeah, I'm going four, although I'm also with Jason. I'm kind of in, in between there on three and a half and four, but uh, it, it's it's fun. And I, I totally get why everyone is so nostalgic for it. Yes. So we'll come back then and talk about the legacy of The Princess Bride. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, We have been talking about Jason's pick, which is The Princess Bride. And as we've said, Rob Reiner, our most covered director, I don't know we need to say anything else about his career and, of course, that amazing run of films that we keep referencing in the 80s and 90s that he had. I think we should talk about this um, kind of eruption of Princess Bride uh, rehashes and kind of stagings and over COVID, they did the reading and you watched it, correct? 
Yeah, it's not. I mean, there had been a reading at one point, but the thing that was made, the the home movie remake of The Princess Bride that was done early in the COVID lockdown is not just a reading. It is a homemade thing. All of these celebrities, I think it's something like almost 90 different celebrities shot little portions of scenes at home with their own clothes, their own props in their houses while they're quarantined or whatever with their cell phones. And Jason Reitman, who had done those stage readings, and as we talked about, I think in our Reservoir Dogs episode, is that's the thing that he does with a lot of these older films. He does these new stage readings. He directed this version of it that was sort of a fan-made remake and was released on Quibi, the service that you want to release your film on when it needs to be an enduring piece of pop culture. Um, but it is available to watch on YouTube now. Quibi, of course, does not exist anymore. Um, and I watched it and I just thought it would be like, oh, this will be fun to kind of mention on the podcast and I'll give it a watch. And it's it's only 68 minutes because they cut out establishing shots and most of the big action bits and whatever because they can't really shoot them. And it was just really, really fun. I mean, we're talking about the nostalgia for this film and the enthusiasm for this film. And you can tell that virtually every person who participated in this just like is having a super good time and clearly loves The Princess Bride and is happy to just show up and turn on their cell phone and say a few lines from the movie if that's what they get to do. And it's also this kind of nice solidarity that seemed to exist early in the pandemic before everything turned toxic and there's no more solidarity anymore. There hasn't been. But for this tiny little moment, it was like, how nice these celebrities are getting together and they're doing this fun thing to entertain us and it's all for charity and that doesn't exist anymore. But I would recommend if you, if you like The Princess Bride, check this out on YouTube. It is a fun watch. The December 2011 reading at LACMA, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, Josh, that Reitman staged had Paul Rudd as the lead, Mindy Kaling as Buttercup, and a bunch of actors you know, but um, Carrie Ulwes, if that's how you say it, Josh. Yeah, you definitely say it with that very exaggerated. <laughs> that's, I'm sure he introduces himself just like that every time. <laughs> he played Humperdinck. Rob Reiner played the grandfather, and Fred Savage reprised his role as the grandson. Yeah, and a bunch of those people are in the Quibi version. Paul Rudd shows up as Wesley at one point. Carrie Ulwes plays Humperdinck at one point. Fred Savage plays the grandson in the very beginning. And one thing that's especially nice, but also kind of sad, is the last scene in that Quibi version has Rob Reiner as the grandson and Carl Reiner as the grandfather. And that was actually Carl Reiner's final on-screen appearance. I mean, I think that's lovely. Yeah. And it and the, the movie ends with him saying, as you wish, and walking out the door. Well, yeah. Who doesn't want that? That's like perfect. Right. Uh, and Fred Savage kind of also played this role in Deadpool 2, right? Um, it's like a different version of Deadpool 2 that I haven't seen when they released the I like PG-13 version that cuts oh, out a yeah. bunch of stuff. And they, they added that as a framing device where it's like Deadpool is telling him the story. I think I haven't watched it. I've only seen the original version. Dave, have you ever played any of these uh, billion video games that are Princess Bride related? No, I actually didn't know that there were Princess Bride video games. Well, now you got to look into that. Have thanks, you ever Dave. played yeah. the baseball video game that Fred Savage plays at the beginning of the movie? Yeah, that was not RBI baseball. That looked like bases loaded to me, Dave. I think so, too. I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so we both did. That's that's yeah, that's good. I don't think I played that one. Hey, Josh, speaking of these readings on September 13, 2020, 
Most of the original cast members took part in a virtual live read-through um, Princess Bride reunion to support the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. More than 110,000 viewers donated a dollar or more to Wisconsin Democrats to view the live stream event. That's a quite a good fundraiser. Yeah, and I think all of these things show that you know, people love this so much. They just want to see the cast get back together. Or they want to see celebrities reenacted or whatever. Um, you know, any kind of, any way to show their appreciation for this movie, people are up for it. I think so. So Josh, we've talked about Rob Reiner. We've talked about Robin Wright. We've talked about Billy Crystal on this show before. So we should get into some of these uh, other people here. Christopher Guest, we've talked about. We know that uh, Reiner and Guest are Teaming right now for the uh, Spinal Tap 2 sequel that's in the works. And um, I'm also excited that Rob Reiner is directing Albert Brooks' Defending My Life, the documentary about Albert Brooks. Who doesn't want to watch that? Yeah, I feel like at this stage, I could trust Rob Reiner to direct a documentary about a fellow kind of comedy star. And, and that's, friend, like friends from their teenage years. Yeah, that I'm sure will be fine. That Spinal Tap sequel, I am deeply skeptical of. I mean, I, the thing is, though, you still have Christopher Guest and, you know, Harry Shearer and Michael McKeon. Like, they're the keepers of that flame. You know, I don't think they're going to go out and throw out something half-assed. No, but I just wonder if they can really capture that magic. And they have been. I think Harry Shearer just recently released a new, like, solo track as, uh, what's his name, Derek Smalls, his character. He's been releasing that and and solo albums and stuff all in character. And I think that the new thing that he released was, I don't remember what it was, but it was some take on some current, like... It was Must Smash Barbie. There you I go. So, I, mean, it's <laughs> yeah. just, I didn't listen to the song, but it just sounded like... Yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know anything about it. I do know that Carrie Ellis is going to be in the Rebel Moon series. Um, he's in the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare and in the Knuckles series, Sonic fans. Yeah, he's everywhere, of course. I mean, yeah. I, I really do think that aside from The Princess Bride, the thing he's most known for is the Saw movies. But Yeah. And of course, his book, As You Wish, the uh, which was a bestseller about his time filming The Princess Bride. Yeah. And and as you said, this is such a key part of so many of their people's, these people's careers that when he wrote a book about his life and his career, he, you know, sort of centered it on his experiences making this film. I thought it's it's funny to me or interesting. I don't know that he also starred in Robin Hood Men in Tights, the Mel Brooks right. parody, which yeah. is you know where he's imitating Errol Flynn, which is obviously what he's also doing here. I think so. That was what I was going to say would be his other best known role. I mean, he's perfect for that type of thing. And we just saw him this summer in uh, Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One. Yeah, he's everywhere. And Blackberry, he was in Blackberry recently, and was yeah. on Stranger Things, I guess. So he's constantly working. Yeah, he does work a lot. Um, Chris Sarandon, we talked about pretty recently, Josh, in our uh, last season there, Dog Day Afternoon. So Peter Cook, who was the clergyman, I was fun researching him because he was known as the father of modern satire and like one of the key figures in the satire boom of the British 1960s, which was kind of, or the 50s and 60s. It was fun to re read about. I didn't really know anything about that. And um, he had a long partnership with... Uh, Dudley Moore, and of course, we have made mentioned his uh, his group, the Cambridge Footlights, on our Peter's friend episode. Peter's friends, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I'm not. I wasn't familiar with any of that stuff either. But he certainly is amusing to watch here. Uh, Mandy Patinkin, as we've said, has become this sort of Saul Berenson. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, oh, I feel yeah. like he's become this, you know, Betty White-ish figure where people just love him for his own personality. But of course, he's an extremely accomplished actor. Saul Berenson, his character on Homeland, you know, lots of big TV, long runs on TV shows like that and Dead Like Me and Criminal Minds and Chicago Hope, um, where he won an Emmy for Chicago Hope and was nominated for seven Emmys for his various roles. He has won a Tony for Evita. And I think reflecting that position of his as just this lovable guy as himself, like one of his most recent things was he was developing a sitcom with his wife just about their, like based on their life. That was supposed to be a Showtime show that I think is unfortunately not happening now. Yeah, it would be fun to watch it. He always seemed to just be leaving whatever show that he was on as it like ascended in popularity, but he was, he's so talented. He always landed the next thing. It wasn't right. like, and no knock to David Caruso, right? But like, <laughs> you know, he left NYPD Blue and then he just really didn't do much until CSI Miami, right? And then, but Mandy Patinkin would like, what, you're leaving that show? And oh, this new show you're on is just as popular again, you know, or I'll just go be a, a star on Broadway for a few more years. Like he's, he's really got the goods there. Yeah, I mean, I think when he left, it was mainly, I think, Criminal Minds and Chicago Hope that were those big hit shows that he left as they were becoming huge hits. And I think he did get a reputation for being a little tough to work with, or maybe he just had certain standards and these are network procedurals that didn't quite fit what he was looking for. But, but now, I mean, he works so much. And like you said, in so many different areas, I feel like he, he must be good to work with. Josh, you know, Wallace Shawn, not just a, an actor, uh, who's, of course, a very famous voice actor, but an essayist and a playwright. As a playwright, would he be a live scenerist? I don't know. Maybe. He's All also right. a screenwriter, though, didn't he? He wrote the screenplay for My Dinner with Andre, which is based on his stage play, I believe. Yeah, he co-wrote it. And yeah, he just works constantly. So. He does. It's amazing. I mean, and he's, you know, he's got well-known roles He like this or My Dinner with Andre and Clueless. And he's been in a ton of Woody Allen movies, including one of his most recent films, Rifkin, Rifkin's Festival, where he was the main star of it. But looking through his filmography, it's just this, this huge stream of like direct-to-video movies and, and kids' movies, uh, things like Timmy Failure, Jason's favorite film. He played the teacher. He's not bad in that. But uh, Josh, Toy Story, The Incredibles, you know, come right. on. So he's everywhere. I remember loving him on uh, Gossip Girl, which is the kind of thing you're like, Wallace Shawn on Gossip Girl, but he it worked. He was great. Yeah, I still remember him as, you know, Cliff's friend on the Cosby show for some very humorous stuff there. Yeah. Mel Smith, the other British actor, uh, had a successful partnership with Griff Reese Jones, and they had a company called Talkback, which was like a huge production company in the UK for TV comedy, and you might recognize him from National Lampoon's European Vacation. No, I haven't seen that in a long time. Well, you might recognize him. I guess we got to talk. We haven't really talked about Peter Falk, who has four Emmys, Josh. And then uh, he's the first actor to be nominated for an Academy Award and an Emmy Award in the same year, achieving the feat twice, 61 and 62. He's also got a gold. Columbo, baby. Right, Columbo, and he wasn't in the John Cassavetes movie that we talked about, Gloria, but of course he's known for his collaborations with John Cassavetes on a number of films. Yeah, and I watched uh, those two together in a lame maze, Mikey and Nikki, not too long ago. Yeah, great. And and I feel like Columbo is having this resurgence also via memes, and especially with Poker Face, the Natasha Leone show that has a lot of influence from it. And the, it seems like people are getting back into Columbo now for whatever reason. 
It's probably, I mean, I never really watched it, but I mean, it was so enduring and so acclaimed. It's probably, you know, a good show is a good show, bro. Yeah, I'm not complaining about it at all. So uh, anything else you want to say about the legacy of this film, Jason? Inconceivable. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> it's good. You know, Hay and Richard Dreyfus are a degree away from each That's other. That's true. That's true. There's a bit of overlap there. So that is The Princess Bride. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can tell us a fairy tale online and on social media. As I already told you, I'm go for Jason on Letterboxd. That's all you care about. Oh, okay. Uh, Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on the socials. Uh, eat this comedy coming back baby so look for that and don't forget to find us at awesomemovieyear.com awesomemovieyear on facebook and instagram awesomemoviepod on twitter josh yes you can find some uh, old writing from me at joshbellhateseverything.com also at joshbellhateseverything on facebook and at signalbleed on twitter or x at Signal Bleed on Letterbox, and I'm now on Blue Sky too. Why am I in all these dumb things? But you what is, I don't even at, know what that is. You can find me at Signal Bleed on Blue Sky if you're on there. You gotta you gotta be invited. It's an exclusive club. I mean, that's what they said about Facebook back in the day. What is uh, Blue Sky? It's basically Twitter. It's Twitter for people who don't want to be on Twitter anymore. Mm, okay, it's uh, it's all right. Check me out. I have like ten followers. So invite me, Josh, and I will. All right. <laughs> And of course, listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together, which you can find on any podcast app and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And just out of curiosity, I just looked up when we brought up The Princess Bride on the show, which seems like it would be on a million episodes, but it was just the Lord of the Rings episode with you guys. Mm, We love The Princess Bride. And all your guests are morons, Dave. I guess so. Yeah. It's fine. It's about time you admitted it. Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, we're going to Sundance. It's a film festival. It's become very popular. And we're going to cover Lizzie Borden's Working Girls. So tune in next time for Working Girls. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.